Well, it's good to be with you all again. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Joshua Coleman, um, and I would love to meet you following the service. But uh, it's a joy to be with you again. Um, I've gotten to worship with you several times, and every time I, I love worshiping at this church. Um, I really love getting to be with you, and I'm really glad that I get to look at God's Word with you. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 139. Um, so you can turn there. We'll be in Psalm 139. Um, but before we actually jump into the psalm, uh, I, I, w- I want to talk to you a little bit about awe, um, wonder, uh, because th- this is a key theme in, in our text. And um, last night, I-, I actually got to talk to my, my parents-in-law about their trip to Alaska uh, and-, and got to hear about these amazing glaciers that they saw and about the sense of wonder that that brings about when you're standing before this huge, majestic thing that's way bigger than you. Uh, and and this, the same idea of, of awe and of wonder um, actually happened to me um, a couple years ago when I was in a, a really difficult moment. I was struggling, and a, a good friend of mine was kind of consoling me, and I was really struggling with, I, I, I know God is out there, but I haven't felt his presence in a while. And it, it just felt like I had been kind of in the desert. And I was like talking to this friend and I was saying, how do, how do I know God is there? I, I believe he's there, but I, I feel like I haven't experienced his presence in a while. And we were in Colorado and he said, Josh, turn around, look at those mountains. And so I turned and I, I looked at these mountains and I was just in that moment transfixed. I was stunned by the beauty and I was awed by, by just the immensity of these mountains. And he goes, Josh, they didn't have to be beautiful. They didn't have to be beautiful. They're beautiful on purpose. Um, there's, a, there's a theologian, um, Von Balthasar, who says that beauty is truth's prophet. Um, when, you, when you make a truth claim, people can argue about interpretation. But when you see beauty, it transfixes you. And so it's truth's prophet. And in that moment, I remember it was like I saw these mountains and I realized God is good. Like the, the, the beauty of it and the awe that I felt, it pointed past itself. It was, it was actually, it was, it was like God was tapping me on the shoulder and just like signaling to me like, hey, I'm here. I made this. This is beautiful because I wanted it to be for you. And uh, so as we enter into this text, the reason I tell you that story is because... Um, this text is all about awe and wonder in the presence of a mighty and, and, and majestic God. And we need that. We need that in, in our country. We, we need that today. Um, I was actually uh, listening to a podcast the other day that was talking about the statistics for um, anxiety and depression in America. And it turns out that they have been exponentially trending upward ever since 2012, which is when social media became ubiquitous uh, in America. And ever since then, and this is actually hitting the younger generation the hardest. Um, Gen Z is reporting way more um, meaninglessness, nihilism, uh, depression, anxiety. But there's something about awe and wonder, just like that did for me when I looked at these mountains and, and realized that God was tapping me on the shoulder. There's something about transcendence that sweeps that depression and, and that, that anxiety away. There's, there's something about, it, it's, it's humbling, but it's also joy-inducing. It's, it's, it's built into our nature to work that way because we're made to have a relationship with a transcendent and holy God. 
Um, so as we enter into this text, I, I just hope that you'll be able to catch just a glimpse of, of the awe and the wonder that, that I've felt this week as I've been studying this text. Um, it, it's really beautiful. And, and you'll see that David is in awe of God. Um, so now we're going to enter in. Uh, please read with me. This is Psalm 139. This is God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. The light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come into your presence today, I just ask that you would speak through your word, that you would, that you would tap us on the shoulder, and that you would make us aware of your majesty, of your holiness, of your immensity, of, of your glory. And let us walk out of this place with a renewed vision of who you are and who we are, and with a sense of awe and wonder that we get to have a relationship with you. Please speak through uh, my words. Please um, calm my heart and allow me to preach your word for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, So this psalm is one of my favorite psalms. And as I said, it has this sense of of the immensity of God. Um, and, And the reason for that is that actually... Uh, It's a meditation on the nature of God. Um, Isaiah 40 and this psalm are probably the two most looked at psalms, or the two most looked at parts of scripture, because Isaiah 40 is not a psalm, but for systematic theologians. Uh, Because there's so much richness about the nature of God contained in this psalm. And and the way that the stanzas work, uh, every six verses is a stanza, 
And David goes from thinking about the omniscience of God, which is God's knowledge, his infinite knowledge, to then thinking about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is immense and beyond any boundaries of of space, uh, to then talking about the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. And then finally, uh, David then takes this turn and and gives us two possible responses to to a God like this, to a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. There are two possible responses that we could have to this God. So first... In the first stanza, let's look at the omniscience of God. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So four times throughout those verses, the word know or knowledge shows up because David is, he's meditating on the knowledge of God. He's meditating on, on the immensity of God's knowledge. But this is something interesting to me, and you'll see this actually in every stanza. It's not just propositional, it's personal. When David thinks about the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows all things, he also thinks about the fact that God knows him, that actually God knows him individually, completely. God knows David more than David knows David. And so you see in, in verse 1, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And so my, my first question for you is, do you know the God who knows your heart? Do you know that God? Have you experienced his presence? David has, and, and, and it blows his mind. He, he goes on to say, Lord, you, you know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. What's cool about this is that it's not just in our high moments that God is attentive to us, and it's not even just in our low, mom, our low moments, even in our mundane moments, even in our normal everyday life. God is attentive. He, he sees what we're going through. He, he's aware of us. He, he knows us. When you're driving to work or you're driving the kids to school, when you're awake at night at 3 a.m. because you can't get your brain to shut down, God knows you in all of those normal moments, too. He then, he then goes on to say that God knows a word on his tongue before he even says it. So God, God's knowledge is not confined like ours is by, by time. Right? We, we know what has happened in the past, and we know what's happening in the present, but God knows what will happen in the future as well. He, and, and, and it's so personal, right? David says, you know my words even before they're on my tongue. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. When, when David thinks about the omniscience of God, his mind is already jumping to the next stanza where he's going to talk about the omnipresence of God. When he thinks about the fact that God knows him completely, he begins to realize like God is surrounding him. He's, he's, uh, his, his presence is behind and before David. Uh, it, it reminds me of, of Acts when Paul is preaching in the Areopagus and he says to them, I see you have a statue to the unknown God. Well, I'm here to tell you about that unknown God. And just as your own poets have said, he's not far from any of you because in him we live and move and have our being. Right? And, and so uh, Paul comes to tell them about Yahweh, about, about our God. The God who is always near to us because he's omniscient. He's present everywhere. In him we live and move and have our being. And David has that same idea here when he says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. 
then when, when he thinks about that, I mean, you can, you can sense the awe and the wonder because David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot, I cannot attain it. Uh, this, is, this is the proper response and, and this, is, this is something that will happen to you if you begin to try to fathom the omnis of God. If you just, I would encourage you to do this. Sit down and just think about the nature of God. And you, what you begin to realize is your brain cannot comprehend God. He's, he's not safe. He's not tame. He's, he's beyond your ability to understand. He's beyond your ability to comprehend fully. There's, there's a mystery to God that should humble us. It, 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 that's the right response, that we ought to be humbled when we think about God. And um, C.S. Lewis, one, one of my favorite writers, he wrote this book called Till We Have Faces. I, I think it's brilliant. Uh, and in this book, there's a, there's a character who um, is sort of searching for God, but who is also very arrogant and, and very, very proud. Um, and she has lots of accomplishments, and, and she's a very competent figure in the story. Um, and she's also somewhat of a victim as well in the story. And so she's kind of, she has the, she, she, she is a very um, relatable character. She, she's someone that the whole story, you, you can really empathize with her. Uh, but what's interesting is that she keeps indicting God throughout the whole story. Why don't you show up? Why don't you show me your face? Why, if you're there, why don't you make it obvious to me that you're, that you're there? And so she has this kind of pride and this arrogance. And it's not until the very end of the story that her, her pride is completely dispelled because she does get this glimpse of God and it completely humbles her. And she realizes, I thought I was the judge and I thought God was in the dock. But actually, no, I'm, I'm the one who's being judged here. God is, is far more transcendent and holy than I am. And it's actually I who have to answer to him. And, and in that moment, she's undone and she's humbled. And I, I, can't, I can't fully communicate it to you, but I remember, I mean, reading that story, you, you do get a sense of awe. You, you get a sense of the immensity of God. Humility is, is, is the proper response. There, there's something about our pride that, that blinds us to God. And there's, there's also something about God's presence that automatically humbles us. Uh, James 4, uh, in the book of James, James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's actually a really useful verse to know because that's a promise. God is saying, if you're proud, I'll oppose you. But when you humble yourself, then I'm on your side. And I, I, I read that and I started thinking about it and I started to realize I am a very, very proud person, very arrogant but that means God is against me, and that's foolish. It's foolish to set yourself up as the enemy of God. I would much rather be on the same side as God. Like, like we talked about earlier in, in, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit is the first Beatitude. The meaning of that is that you're blessed if you have been brought low enough, that you are humble enough, that you have a posture of willingness to receive from God. There's a humility there. And, and, and you can see that in the awe and the wonder of David as he thinks about God's omniscience. 
But then, but then he moves on to God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12, where he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I were to take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So he, he moves from, from omniscience to omnipresence, and he thinks about first the vertical axis and then the horizontal axis and realizes that God is present everywhere. He says, if I could ascend to the heavens or if I could, like a Greek hero, go down into Sheol, down into Hades, either way, God is present there. There's nowhere I could go on the vertical axis where God would not already be present. And then he says, what if I took the wings of the morning, which the sun rises in the east? And, and then he says, and what if I went to the uttermost parts of the sea? which for Israel, the sea would have been in the west. So if I went from the furthest reaches of the east to the furthest reaches of the west, and I took the wings of the morning, it's like the idea of like, if I could fly at the speed of light from east to west, I still could not outrun God. Uh, it's actually kind of funny. This psalm bears a lot of similarities to the story of Jonah. Right? If you think about Jonah, uh, God comes to him and, and, and tells him to go to Nineveh, and he says, those are my enemies, and God is a kind and, and stead, a, a God of steadfast love and forgiveness. I don't want to go to them lest they repent and God not destroy them. So he runs in the other direction. And that's foolish because you can't escape the presence of God. No matter how far you run, no matter how fast you can go. So he gets in the ship, he, he starts going in the opposite direction. And what happens? The oceans rage and, and Jonah is humbled. And then he's cast into the ocean, and then he's brought by a fish, it says actually in Jonah, all the way down to the depths of Sheol. And finally, he cries out to God. Finally, he's humbled enough that he cries out to God. So, and I don't think David wants to, to flee from God's presence. I think he's just in awe of the fact that he couldn't, if, even if he wanted to, even if he tried. God is, he's, he's present everywhere. He, there, there's, there's no place where we could go that we could escape him. And even if we were to flee from him, like Jonah, he would be covering and sustaining and protecting and holding us in existence even while we fled from him. Because God is the ground of being and God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to escape from him. Then in verse 10, it goes on to have this idea that David thinks about the omnipresence of God and he makes it personal. He says, even at the furthest reaches of, of places that I could go, your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. And, and I love this verse because what David is saying is that God can, there's nowhere that he could go that God could not lead him. There's nowhere he could go that he would be beyond God's protection. Um, another C.S. Lewis reference, there's a book called The Horse and His Boy. And it's, it's one of my favorite books from the Chronicles of Narnia. In this story, there's, there's a character who uh, is on a journey... He's, he's leaving a, a land where he doesn't belong. He's trying to reach Narnia, Aslan's country. Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. And the whole time he's trying to reach this, this land, this country, this promised land, if you will, uh, he's being chased by lions. And uh, he's terrified of the lions. But at the very end of the story, he finds out that uh, as he's crossing over into the promised land, the land that he's actually from, um, there's a deep mist, and the lion comes and walks beside him. And the lion tells him, it was I. 
the whole time who was bringing you to where you are now. From, from his crib when he was brought to safety from a, from a ship that had sunk uh, in, in a boat, the, the lion brought him to shore all the way through the story, the, the Erebus, the other character that he meets because of the lion chasing them, so they come together. Uh, the lion protects him when he's in the tombs, all of these different moments. And so what you realize in the story is that Shasta had been seeking Aslan, uh, he'd been seeking Narnia, but he did not feel that Aslan was present with him. And you find at the end of the story that actually Aslan was abundantly present the whole time, and he was actually seeking Shasta. That actually Aslan uh, was the primary mover in the story, and he didn't realize until that moment that every moment along the way, Aslan had been present with him. And, and I, I love that idea because what it means is even when we lack a subjective experience of God's presence, God is objectively present wherever we are. Even when we lack a subjective experience of God, we, we can never lack the objective presence of God because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And, and so that, that should give us courage. That, that should actually strengthen us. Right? Uh, David goes on to say, even in his darkest moments, right, when the darkness covers, he says, surely the darkness will cover me and the light will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So even in, even in David's darkest moments, when he maybe cannot sense God, he, he cannot subjectively experience God's presence, he knows that because God is omnipresent, even the darkness is as light to God. He, there, there's nowhere that he could go, there, there's no place he could go where he would be beyond the presence and the protection of his God. And, and that is a very encouraging thing. I mean, that... It really blows my mind. Um, there's, a, there's a book called um, The Screwtape Letters. Another, another C.S. Lewis reference, sorry. I, I'm pulling from one well, guys. Um, it's just the way it happened. Uh, but I, I, I love this reference where the, the, the demon is writing to a younger demon. and He's trying to tell him, here's what you need to watch out for. And he says, be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, the enemy being God, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, but still obeys. Wormwood says, our cause is never more lost than when a Christian does not experience God subjectively, but they still obey because they're trusting that God is still objectively present. So that's the omniscience and the omnipresence. Now we move on to the omnipotence of God. In verses 13 through 18, uh, David thinks about the power of God, the omnipotence of God, but he, t- he talks about it in very personal terms. Right? God is, uh, his, his power is probably most prominently shown in the Bible through creation in Genesis 1. When Elohim speaks and light occurs, when he speaks creation and and everything that exists into being. Well, David reflects on on the omnipotence of God, but he thinks about it in a personal way. So it's actually, he thinks about God as the creator of him. God is actually David's creator. He thinks about the the miracle, the, the, the beauty of the fact that God knit him together in his mother's womb. 
it says in verse 13. In verse 14, he says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That God knows our frame. He he knows our substance. He, He knit us together. Even if you could fully understand the biology which maybe some of you do, I I don't know. Uh, It's still a miracle, the way that a human life is formed. It's still amazing that God brought it about the way that he did and that he designed it to work the way in which it does. It's it's an awe-inspiring thing when someone is born. And then he goes on in verse 16 and says, your eyes saw my unformed substance and the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So he thinks about God as creator, and then he thinks of God as providential uh, ruler over his life. That he's never beyond the providence of God. Everything that happens in his life, whether it's good or bad, is actually coming directly from the hand of God. And this doesn't mean that we as Christians can expect an easy life. Everything that we experience does come from the hand of God, but we will experience suffering. If Jesus experienced suffering, then we will experience suffering because the the servant is not greater than the master. But what it does mean is that when you do experience Christian, when you do experience suffering, your your trials are handpicked for you. There's a meaning, there's a purpose for it. God is using it to bring about holiness. God is using it to bring about closer relationship to him. And it's actually often in our suffering that we become humble enough that we actually cry out to God. God, God wounds us like a surgeon. Sometimes he has to wound us so that he can heal us. But there's a, there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty to the power of God when you realize that the most powerful one uses his power for your good. If, if, if you're on the side of God, then everything, good or bad, works out for your good. There's a, that's promised to us in scripture. That's, that's a promise that we can hold on to. And, and David understands this. He, he meditates on the thoughts of God and the power of God, and he says it's vast beyond the sum of my understanding. He said, the thoughts of God are, are like sand on the seashore. I, I can't count them. Right? It, it, it's like the stars in the sky. It's too, it's too overwhelming. We, we can't comprehend it. We can't hold it in our mind because God's mind is not like our mind. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Uh, a theologian named Stephen Charnock, uh, when he talks about the 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 power of God versus the power of man, he says, man indeed wills many things that he is not able to perform and understands many things that he is not able to affect. He understands much of the creatures, something of the sun, the moon, and the stars. He can conceive many stars, many moons, yet is not able to create the least atom. But there is nothing that belongs to power, but God understands it and is able to affect it. To sum this up, the will of God is the root of all. The wisdom of God is the copy of all. The power of God is the framer of all. God is all-powerful. But that power is used for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. God's creativity is is on display in every human person that you see. I I, I think uh, this is is moving to a a different thought, but I I think there's a strong application here that... uh, Every person is a person well before they're born, and that God knows them in their mother's womb. God uses his power to create each individual soul. So when you see a person, you're seeing God's divine power on display. You're seeing his creativity. 
And we create because we're made in the image of a creator. The fact that God uses his power for our good and for our benefit, it it should make us courageous, but it also should allow us uh, trust. It it, it should give us an experience of trust because we can depend on him because he's all-powerful. I was talking to a pastor at one time, and I I was telling him, you know, I think I'm, I'm just so prone to trying to do it on my own. And the gospel says you can't do it on your own. You, you need God to do it for you. But I'm really prone to do it on my own. And I'm trying to learn how, how, do, you, how do you go through life depending on God? Like, wh- what, does that, what does that look like? And he said, well, this is, this is how I think of it, this pastor. He said, my son is just learning to walk. He's young, he's, he's little, and so he can walk a little bit. But when he comes to a stone or, or like something in the path that he can't navigate on his own, he just reaches up. Because I'm walking behind him, and I'll lift him over it, and then he can keep walking. He doesn't even look at me. He, he knows I'm there. So anytime he encounters something that he does not have the resources to overcome, with the, the faith of a child, he just reaches up and assumes, Dad's got me. And his dad reaches down and lifts him over whatever it is that is in the path. There's a beauty to that, I think, and and a simplicity to that, because as Christians, we have a Heavenly Father who's always present with us, who has the power to affect our circumstances, and is never never further than a prayer away. And so I, I think that when we meditate on the power of God, this should make us a praying people, should make us a humble people, should make us a courageous people, should make us a dependent people. So we've, we've looked thus far at the attributes of God. We've looked at his omniscience, we've looked at his omnipresence, we've looked at his omnipotence, and now in this final section, we're going to see the two responses that are possible to this majestic God. And so David takes a turn. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, if you're like me, these verses can sound sort of harsh, right? Because David says he he hates the wicked. And I've always grown up hearing that you should love the sinner, but hate the sin. And that is true. And I think there's some New Testament context that David doesn't have. And it is true that we, we shouldn't just hate people who disagree with us. We should, we should love everyone. I mean, the Bible is clear that we're called to love everyone. Uh, however, there's also a sense in which what's on display here is David's zeal for the Lord. Right? Think about Goliath. When Goliath stood up and he, he said, any one of you can come out and fight me because I'm stronger than you and I think your God is weak. And he mocked the God of Israel. And David's response to that was, who is this man that he thinks he can mock the God of heaven and earth? I'm not a great warrior, but I'll fight him because God is on my side. So, I mean, if, if you think about David's response there, we, we really admire his response because it's a, it's a response that's coming out of his zeal for the Lord, his love for the Lord, and it gave him courage. 
And you notice it, 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 he remained humble, even though he was courageous. He didn't say, I'm going to fight him because I'm an even better, even bigger, even stronger version. I'm not, he, 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 his confidence was not rooted in his ability. It was rooted in his God. And so I think there's a real sense in which uh, what we can take from this section is that the question that lies before you is, would you rather side with Goliath or side with God? And David says, I'm siding with God every day of the week because I know that God is far more powerful than Goliath. Right? So you can, have, you can have David's response, or you can have Goliath's response. And if, if you do exhibit the zeal for the Lord, you will experience some measure of suffering. If you do exhibit the zeal for the Lord, you will experience probably injustice, probably people will maybe isolate you, maybe, maybe they'll be made uncomfortable by your willingness to keep your integrity. Um, but this is why Jesus tells us, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I was a freshman in high school, I had entered a new school, so I didn't know anyone very well. And, uh, it took me a while to make friends. I was kind of lonely. Uh, but one of the reasons it was hard for me to make friends was because most of the kids in my class were cheating on a consistent basis. And I didn't want to do that. Um, I, I, I knew that God saw me. I knew that God was present and I was more afraid of God than I was afraid of ninth graders, but it sucked. My, 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 pardon my French, but like, it was not a fun semester. Uh, it, it really was not great. Um, I was, I was, I was very isolated because I wouldn't cheat. Um, but Eventually, when the people who had cheated were caught, I was very glad that I hadn't done it. And also, the, the principal did a really interesting thing. He actually uh, he pardoned them and gave them another chance after sitting down and talking to them, because I went to a Christian school. Um, he, he, he actually gave them mercy, which made me kind of angry, because I was like, I didn't cheat this whole time. <laughs> right? But, but the, th- the thing is, actually, God delights to show mercy, but he also calls us to righteousness. Bo- both are true. So he was working on me and my self-righteousness, and he was working on them and their lack of integrity, we could say. In, in both cases, God is at work. And so we, we are called to put benevolence towards all sinners, but we're, we're also called not to be permissive of sin. And I think that's what David is getting at here. And the reason I, I think that you see that David is, is not really being self-righteous. Is that in verse 23 and 24, there's a real spirit of humility. Right? He, he talks about the wicked. He, he, he tells God, like, I, I, you know, they're your enemies. I'm against them. I'm siding with you, God. And then he realizes, maybe I'm one of God's enemies too. And he starts thinking and he, he says, search me, God, and, and, and try me and know my thoughts. Because there are lots of thoughts that I have that I realize are not righteous. He says, see if there's any grievous way in me. See if there's any sin in me that I cannot even see because I'm blind to my own blindness. Right? Search it out. If there's something in me that's sinful, God, point it out to me and, and, and take it away from me. Regardless of how, how much I love that thing, regardless of how much I depend on that idol, regardless of how, uh, how painful the process may be for that to be cut away, take that away from me because I only want you, God. That's David's... That's David's thought process. That's, that's his 
And, and, and you see the humility in that, that he, he's living a life of continual repentance. He's living a life where he's constantly aware that he is a sinner and he needs God to intervene on his behalf to make him holy. And this is actually, this, this is the juncture in our lives where we need the cross. Because you don't want God to back off of his holiness. You do not want God to stop being against the wicked. You want him to punish wickedness, but you also don't want him to punish you, but you're wicked. I'm wicked. David recognizes, God, Father, I have grievous ways in me. I'm wicked. I need you to save me. And that's exactly why Jesus came. At the cross, justice and mercy kiss. At the cross, Jesus takes on the punishment for our sin. All the things that we've done that are wicked. Jesus takes the full wrath of God so that those who are in Christ might not have to experience that wrath, but actually rather experience the love of their heavenly father. It was counted unto him as uh, his sin was counted unto him so that the love of the father that is due to him is actually given to us. And so now if you're in Christ, you're a son, you're a daughter, you may experience God's discipline, but you will not experience his wrath. So uh, may that be where we all land. I promise you, you, you want that deal. If you try to bargain with God, if you slide your resume across the table and say, accept me based on this, it's no deal every time. We're toast, unless we have a mediator. And that mediator is Christ. And the, the Christian life is a life in Christ. It's a life of awe and wonder. And it's a life where we walk day by day in repentance next to Jesus, this side of heaven, all the way home until we see him face to face. Please pray with me. Father God, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we're in awe of your majesty, of your holiness, of your immensity, of your glory. Lord, how wondrous to us it is that a God like you would take a people like us. And yet you are our God and we are your people. So we praise you for that. We, we honor you. We glorify you. We magnify your name. Please humble us. Please save us. Please lead us in a life of repentance until that day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.